0: weighing these options, you have to wonder if there isn't something deeper down the chain of causation that has caused this situation. And again, you're wondering why we're reading this. This is why. This does give such an explanation.
1: Yeah, Um, which which in a way, a lot of other theories, including Turchin's, just to bring back the the contrast that we spent a lot less time on doesn't really explain, because he's just like, oh, there wasn't as much money so the capitalists quit cooperating with the union movement, that was the end, bye-bye, have a nice day I mean, that's Turchin's explanation is like is like. Uh, actually, it's not even that, it's that the capitalists stopped cooperating with the union movement, doesn't even say it's money that's causing it implies it, doesn't say it Um, I guess because Turchin is trying to be rigorous and the causal order would be hard to prove, which happened really first. Although he's not very volunteerist in the rest of everything, so I suspect he doesn't really believe it was a voluntary development.
0: Yeah, and considering his read of, like, the Civil War, you'd think he'd be able to weigh in on this. But anyway, um... (sighs) I'm we'll talking about a suspect political thing with Turchin. Anyway, I went over it then. It was just we just had, very weird.
1: We, we we found lots of suspect political things with Turchin, even though he sounds pretty Marxist at points, but there's some yeah. sketch assumptions.
0: You look in that comments section, and Jesus Christ, but hey, I'm, I'm sure if we get any traction, our comments section will be a butthole too. Um, to cap off the historical materialist bona fides here, what we really have here is not Precisely, in my view, a Brennerized theory communist explanation, which is sort of how this is sold. What we have here is something that I think, in a way that isn't just imminent critique. It does fit into a growth of productive forces sort of historical materialist schema. It is just very much a politically inconvenient one. This is the big thing. Hey. Marxists are always talking about this endogenous crisis tendency in capitalism that's going to cause a revolution, but wait, all the revolutions that wave red flags and pictures of Marx started because of like wars and shit. What's the deal with that? Well, Endnotes actually has an explanation from here on out revolution emerged, not as an internal tendency of capitalist development, but rather as an external effect of geopolitics, Revolution occurred only where capitalist development destabilized national frameworks of accumulation, pitting nation states against one another. In the background was also this gnawing predicament. As the productive forces developed, it became increasingly difficult to know what it would mean to win, to run all these massive apparatuses in the interests of the workers. Just as the galaxy, when seen dimly, appears as a single point of light, but when seen close up, turns out to consist mostly of empty space, so too the productive forces of capitalist society when seen in miniature, appeared to give birth to the collective worker, but on a larger scale gave birth only to the separated society. I mean, what you're getting there is a very big historical, lawful claim. I mean, I guess it's a a causal claim that's built into so many economies that maybe we're not talking about a long-term law of mode of production.
1: Yeah. We're going to say we're not, Uh, you've been using law weirdly tonight, but go ahead.
0: (laughs) We see like the passage of one set of dynamics onto another, right? We see endogenous models of revolution give way to exogenous models of revolution and exogenous events really.
1: Right. Do you move from the endogenous model of capitalism structure to the revolutionary defeatism, which eventually, if you follow this logic out leads to even, but much less likely to be true, frankly, but like theories that are kind of just two steps down the reductor ad absurdum, such as third worldism, where it's like, well, this is all in the developing world now. Um and developing world will only can only be further remiserated. It can never be incorporated into the capitalist core. It's a so facto, it must be the source of revolution from without and against even the proletariat of the developed world. That does actually weirdly sort of follow the logic um, that this would pan out if you're just trying to adapt to why this is happening and come up with an ad hoc, you know, post hoc explanation after the fact. And it is interesting to me that in almost all these theories, you see them about 20 years after the conditions they describe really emerge. So, like, you know, third worldism is a product of the 70s and 80s, but the description it's reacting to is a product of the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, mm. um, et cetera, and so forth. Now, I don't know. I'm black pilled. How about you? No. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, like. As it turns out, the internal crisis tendencies causing revolution. That was not the revolutionary wave that we got.
1: Well, as it turns out, the internal crisis theories cause revolution that the final crisis would ever come has either been belayed by countervailing tendencies um, or externalities to the point that, what is it, the lonely moment of the final crisis never emerges because something always causes the destruction of overproduction or the mm-hmm. undervaluation of commodities finally reach the point to increase liquidity. Or um, the workers' movement gets all weird. Or, I mean, like, we always have a countervailing tendency. Now, the way that a lot of people reacted to this in the 1970s and 80s who didn't try to come up with an excuse for it or, or a new theory to overcome it was the post-structuralist answer was 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 to basically embrace the subjective experience of it and become black-pilled AF, I, you know, Aubrey, Leotard, and Baudrillard. And to some degree, um, the late Frankfurt schools, such as Hanifs and, and Habermas's, turn to, like, liberal discourse joy and all this, and, you know, discursive liberality, and new theories of reification, and basically turning defeat into victory by by rebranding. <laughs> um. I mean, if you look at what happened to critical theory in the 70s and 80s, it really is like, we either give up, or we figure out how samsara is nirvana anyway.
0: So, like... <laughs> yeah, we better get used to this.
1: Yeah, and that's even before the... And guys, peeps of the world. Peeps of the world unite, by the way. Um, peeps of the world. <laughs> this happened before the Soviet Union collapsed. I want you to realize that this is not an X extra- through the Soviet Union collapse,
0: this is leading up to it. No, this is part of the causal this is part of the causal chain which ends up with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Keynesian welfare state together. That's what makes this body of theory so interesting, is it takes status socialism as a broader entity than one would in the Cold War. Right? I mean-
1: in some ways, actually, I find it kind of interesting because it actually takes the bureaucratic collectivist argument, the worker, the deformed workers' state argument, and the state capitalist argument. Just goes, motherfucker, they're the same thing. <laughs> All of them are the same thing.
0: Like Always there was has no been. difference
1: at any time. You were just arguing over like what lens you were particularly looking at it. And not only was there no difference, the same tendencies are happening in the capitalist West too.
0: Yeah. So, I happen to know that some of the people writing this essay do sort of believe that looming crisis that hangs over our heads now has all of these statistical and qualitative markers of the basic dynamics of capitalism degrading and falling apart. You know, mass deproletarianization, mass deindustrialization, and the destruction of the environment. I
1: was like, about to say there when I read when I've read them and argue with people at, at least adjacent to end, to endnotes. I'm not quite sure, you know other than a couple of them. I'm not quite sure who exactly they are, but I know people who are influenced by them. I'm they were basically collapse of the environment will create conditions for war communism for survivors, which will force people to organize themselves communistically on a local level which I am sorry is not that fucking different from primitivism. <laughs> like it, it is, it is the, it is the one last gambit saver show.
0: It's interesting that that collapse leads to such different politics, at least in endnotes, to the degree that many of them share this, which I, I don't think all of them are collapses.
1: No, I, um, I don't think so. I, I've talked to ones that aren't, but yeah, you know, exactly. Like, but And I've actually had debates about Endnotes where the ones that aren't show up are like, no, we're not. And then someone else will say something like,
0: yeah, we kind of are. I mean, like... In Volume 5, they have an essay that is directly against a collapse version. Well, they also put Theory
1: Communist in there, which is explicitly collapses. So they also game that volume to have the collapses side win the debate. But let's get on to the, agenda, the class identity. Speaking of Endnotes Volume 1... Because uh, this goes back to a famous essay by Gilles Duvet, which pisses everybody off. But I'm communizing left communists on class identity.
0: Yeah, so we began a little bit with our discomfort <laughs> about the way Endnotes treats the workers' movement, and certainly when I was going back and forth between the community college students being harvested by Trotskyist reading group. <laughs> <laughs> to the Ivy League, extra- adjacent, but you're cool from <laughs>
1: Occupy reading group.
0: Yeah. The <laughs> extracurricular grad school kind of communizer reading group that had secondary historical reading. Like I definitely felt, and you know, I'm not, you know, a little miss proletarian, but I definitely felt a sense of class envy towards the resentful PhD bound nerds in the communizer group versus the hopeless, dead-eyed community college trots. And I could see that this nostalgic workerism put a little spark in those dead-eyed community college students, where for these like grad school nihilists, you know, this was just another sort of a feather in their cap for why they can sort of do whatever they want.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, like, are, I keep on bringing up Baudrillard, but are we at the Baudrillard period of the seventies or are we at
0: like, I sort of just instinctively took umbrage to the way that Endnotes treats the workers movement. However, we now turn to the addendum on class identity because I think there are interesting and good arguments here for their attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it does
1: seem motivated,
0: (laughs) even if it does seem motivated and you know what, even though their arguments are airtight, they're grad students, right? Like they would be, that doesn't exactly absolve them of every one of my suspicions. That's not how critical theory works. You know, you don't just comb through. Well, I guess this argument follows. So my critical suspicions have all gone away. That's not really how it works. Reason, the cause of, and solution to all of our problems. <laughs> all, of, all of life's little <laughs> problems. Um, I don't know how much of this to read because it's all pretty important. And right, We
1: can go through most of it. You want me to start?
0: Why don't you? <laughs> the workers'
1: movement promoted the development of the productive forces as a means of pressing the collective worker into being as a compact mass. As it turns out, The extension and intensification of the factory system failed to have the desired effect. The collective worker really only existed in and through the activity of the workers' movement itself. But the mediations of the workers' movement did make the workers' collective interest into something real. As we have argued, unions and parties constructed a working class identity as a key feature of their organizing efforts. This is not to say that class unity or the identity with which it is associated was somehow merely imposed by union and party leadership that unity and identity was integral to the project of the labor movement itself and the millions of workers that participated in it. And now I'm speaking, which is why all the Leninist attempts to do this now don't work because they're like, (laughs) we just need to build the political consciousness. of, you know, we need to build the political proletariat. And I'm like, Why can't you do it if it's just a matter of the right ideology? As a side note, by the way, if it was just an ideological problem, why would any of this have ever been a problem? We could just convince people the right shit in the first place. Now back into end notes. Within the labor movement, workers claim that the class identity that they promoted and affirmed really was universal in character. It supposedly subsumed all workers, regardless of their specific qualities, as mothers, as recent immigrants, as oppressed nationalities, as unmarried men, and at the outermost limit, as the disabled, as the homosexual, and so on. In fact, the supposedly universal identity that the workers' movement constructed turned out to actually be a particular one. It assumed the worker only insofar as they were stamped or willing to be stamped with a very particular character. That is to say, it included workers not as they were in themselves, only to the extent that they conformed to a certain image of respectability, dignity, hard work, family, organization, sobriety, atheism, and so on. And as a side note, reading Christopher Lash, this is totally true, except for the atheism part because in the American context, it was actually never part of the workers' movement in the same way. Sorry, Ed notes, you should actually factor that in.
0: The communism often wasn't in the U.S. either, yeah. Right. I also like your pronunciation of homosexuals. <laughs> that kind of is period appropriate. <laughs> Sorry,
1: it's, it's my southern coming out. Earlier, as we examined the historical genesis of this particular class identity and the struggle against the old regime, with the expansion of the infrastructural industries, it is possible to imagine that, in the changed conditions, certain particular features of this identity may have turned out differently. To be sure, even within Europe, one... Would find many completely contradictory characteristics ascribed to workers as a class in different national and regional contexts. In that regard, however, we should exercise caution. Even in the United States, where universal manhood suffrage was achieved early and there was no old regime to defeat, a worker's identity was still constructed in the late 19th century around a similar set of markers productivity, dignity, solidarity, personal responsibility, and a nation of immigrants where Africans and Native Americans were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Whiteness represented an additional marker, sometimes complementing class identity and sometimes competing with it. The latter partly explains the weakness of the worker's identity in the U.S., and it's earlier demise, but also points to the deeper structural factors, which gives rise right to that identity in spite of the vast national and cultural differences. And again, this is me talking and you can see this and the valorization of these traits, not as part of a working class identity or as even part of a bourgeois identity, but as part of a racial identity because of the association yes, between yes, waste yes. and the workers movement.
0: Yeah. In the United States, this is especially a problem. Not that it isn't a problem in the European working classes or anything. Totally was. What gives the most lie to this idea that, you know, the racial politico has got it all from class politics is the way that the whiteness compact works in the United States before the workers movement. And the way that as part of the class compromise, it's also a pact with whiteness. Again, Noel Ignatiev is very good about this and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and their work on, what whiteness essentially is.
1: They don't realize it's so profoundly connected to the workers' movement and for the traits ascribed to it. Like, the, once you start ascribing the disgrace of like common dignity and solidarity to the workers' movement, and that is also expressed in a way that it is in the racial movement, even Ignemiev and W.E.D. Du Bois don't see how that goes. And I think it's interesting because, you know, again, I'm writing, you know, this book on Christopher Lash, but Christopher Lash actually really does talk about the need for separate, almost a separate national identity for workers based off of these concerns, off of their like real material conditions, mm-hmm. but not in a liberatory way, but almost normatively conservative. And when I say that, like you have to meet the workers where they are and assume their culture is somewhat indigenous to them and then build from that. Which is the way Lash argues, which is also based off the way he interpreted that argument made by, you know, ex-Marxist, they weren't totally demarxified, but like Harold Cruz, who argued that for black nationalists to fight the middle class character of assimilationist, that black nationalism both had to be class collaborationist, but in still a separate culture with dignity, responsibility, uh, you know, pushing back against the lump and all the things that we see here, we see again there.
0: Yeah. Ignatiev especially has a hard time ascribing some kind of rationality to the class compact for fear that it obliterates the materialist argument uh, for Marxists that they have a long term interest. He he doesn't really use short term, long term interest. This is part of where I developed that understanding. Uh But in saying that white workers had interest in racism at all for him was a betrayal and undermining of the entire Marxist materialist outlook. Whereas I think we can look at the long-term of this class compromise and look at how profoundly fucked the entire working class is now and and talk about the long-term class interests of the proletariat, not having been in that racist nationalist compromise.
1: No, I think Um, the construction of whiteness was a very, always made sense as particularly for a marginal para white or almost white people, such as like the Manx, the Catholic, the Jew, the Basque, even in the Italians later on. For example, Italians being considered fully white in the Northeast was like <laughs> like could be as late as the 70s and 80s. And I know people think I'm strange by saying that, but like there's a reason why Spike Lee, other than the fact he lived in an Italian neighborhood, was always using Italians as his like the white people who could be in the hood who were like picking on whether or not they're going to side with whiteness or not. And that's because of how late that division was still going on. There's a racist, the racist brother and the, the, the not the, racist brother. And it's like literally trying to like almost personify the two possible responses yeah. to, to the situation. Are you going to try to be more white? Or are you going to try to embrace your unique identity and also live in this black community?
0: Yeah. Your hair is kinkier than mine. He says to him. Right. Think, right. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the truth is that, you know, Italians were just straight up called the N word. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, at least the Irish had their own racial source, right? I mean, y-
1: you see this even in again me in the dark side of history. I was reading Minchus Mulbug, and he was trying to bring up Sicilian as Africa conspiracies. Like it's, it's. Um,
0: oh man! Wow! All right.
1: You know that, like that's why the Sicilians came here, and that's why they attacked because they really had like African DNA. And I'm like, oh come on! I mean, it, what's the funny thing is Mulbug Yarvin's a Jew. But, oh, um, man. so oh, talk
0: about off white. Yeah.
1: I mean, so, you know, the-
0: I didn't realize, oh man, I had, I did not realize Moldbug was a Jew. Jesus Christ. Whatever the opposite of a is? Yeah.
1: <laughs> He's an Undar Menchen. Um, <laughs> um,
0: Mishogana sure pseudo guy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the,
1: the point here though is because we don't remember the Manx being made white. But, like, the racial tensions and the short-term interest of the striking workers and the black workers encouraged that. It was in their mutual long-term disinterest. But in their immediate interest, right? it actually made perfect sense. And if you can't separate short-term and long-term interest, I mean, because people talk about this as, like, false consciousness. No, it's a very clear consciousness. It's just, it's a prisoner's
0: dilemma. Like, yeah and you're taking the bad side of the bet. It, it is counterintuitive and hard to deal with how dignity and solidarity can coexist with racism. And for me, it takes the research into evolutionary sociology, the understanding of the in-group and the out-group dilemma, and you know, thinking about solidarity with your in-group Expanded as it is to include this whiteness compact, but still that whiteness compact is exactly the sharpened instrumentalized type of nationality that, you know, Marx was for a lot of types of national sentiment and feeling and popular nationhood, but he was against this particular type of sharpened instrumentalized nationalism. It's exactly that sort of pernicious thing that, preys on the hooks in the brain. It is perfect ideology in a sense, but ideology doesn't have to have no rational content in order to still have its functional purpose. And the fact that it bolsters a short to medium-term class compromise, or, I mean, I don't know, however long this racist whiteness class compromise works for people, right, for white people... Well, one it's a long the, time. One of, the,
1: one of the interesting things about whiteness is that settler colonialism creates a very broad exclusionary category. That's how whiteness has survived is not by just excluding, but also being like, hey, person on the margins that can superficially look like us. And this is the logic where, like, I'm not an Afro-pessimist sympathizer at all. However, This is one of the things where the whiteness blackness binary debates really does really come to stand in because whiteness has expanded and contracted over different groups over different times, including ones that generically don't look that European. I mean, the creation of the Asian race as a different category and color set is actually much later in the historical instantiation. Europeanness comes first, then blackness. Then the fall of Christendom, then whiteness, then expansion, then Asianness or originally yellowness, but they really thought the Asians were white in the first Portuguese accounts with them, and then they come up with a different racial category later. I don't know what you do with that. And I'm also going to even complicate it even further. The creation of those categories was not with blackness was not even unique to Europeanness because it was already concurrently developing. In the late Islamic imperial period, I've read Ibn Khandun, it's yeah.
0: in there. Yeah, that particular theory wasn't like the popular reason for enslaving blacks, but it was one of the... or yeah, the, the popular idea-
1: reason why the enslaved yeah. blacks was religious It's like it was a popular yes. reason for enslaving Arab right. and Moors in the European right. context. But the secondary explanation was that God created an inferior group of people that all happened to have the same skin color, which had also developed concurrently in late medieval Europe so I want to when we talk about the emergence of class we do have to talk about the emergence of race because while ancient world doesn't talk about race the way we do the late medieval world starts to and it definitely does by the early modern period and so that tied up in these identities is really crucial you know it's not like Marx didn't know what racism was or even have racist impulse himself like I refuse to let people bracket that out even though he was functionally an (laughs) anti-racist
0: Yeah, but he was politically black, Derek. His, uh, his friends called them the more. Anyway.
1: We'll get back to in notes because we need to finish this. But this particular yes. race nationality thing is such a huge issue, even for Marxists, because in our attempts to handle these problems through internationalism, we tend to create micronationalisms that backlash on us, particularly in the period in notes is talking about in the areas that the workers' movement was actually the weakest, so, the national movement seems to subsume the workers' movement just like it did in Europe in the beginning. That's not very hopeful. No. There was something necessary, something spontaneous, in the narrowing of the class identity that took place in the workers' movement. I'm back to reading end notes, guys. The key point here is that the collective interest of the worker cannot be determined simply by adding their serial interest as individuals. This fact distinguishes workers from capitalists and also puts the former at a disadvantage in negotiations. After all, the collective interests of capital are, to a large extent, simply a matter of arithmetic, or more accurately, a matter of solving complex systems of equations. Costs must be kept as low as possible, while keeping profits as high as possible. There aren't, for example, environmentalist capitalists and fundamentalist capitalists who come to blows with other capitalists over the way a company should run. That's not true. In notes, That's not true.
0: What they mean, though... Such considerations come into play only insofar as they do not affect the company's bottom line. That is, that true. is true. So Sorry,
1: oh, I should have read foot- the next sentence.
0: <laughs> footnote, capitalists can also express their particular interest in philanthropic settings. They damage or destroy in one moment that which they, with great fanfare, attempt to remedy in the next. So their point ultimately is that there's a specific logic to a capitalist class maximization that is much more commensurate and mathematical.
1: Right. The capitalists adjacent debates on interest, such as feminist interest, whatever, happen at the terms of politics and not in terms of the firm ever. And by that we mean, yes, they could be more diverse in their hiring of a certain amount of people of color into the leadership boards, but they're not going to change their profit margin lines, even if that means cannibalizing
0: the shit out of communities of color to do it. So like you know. And especially when you're coming to environmentalist capitalists, give me a break. Like, this is why there's no capitalist solution to climate change, even if there's electric cars.
1: Right. Workers, by contrast, face a much harder set of calculations. How much in the wages, for instance, can rationally be given up in exchange for the amount of, of increase in job satisfaction? The answer to this question cannot be found in any calculus that can be objectively applied. Can only be found as a result of collective deliberation of the members of brackets workers'
0: organizations. This whole section draws heavily on Klaus Off's and Helmut Weisenthal's essay Two Logics of Collective Action from Off's 1985 volume Disorganized Capitalism, which I've got to read now. Because this section is pretty fascinating. The answers that any
1: particular workers might give to such question depends on their individual preferences as well as such vagaries of their situation. Young and married men have different interests from single mothers. And yet, to deliberate every point, to reach some sort of consensus or compromise, which would ensure that every worker got at least something they wanted, would make workers' organization difficult. And by the way, as me talking, does make working organizations (laughs) difficult. Trust me, I've tried. The cost of organizing would be too great. The solution is to be found in the formation of collective identity, only to the extent that the associations of relatively powerless succeed in the formation of a collective identity, according to the standards of which the cost of organization are subjectively deflated, can they hope to change the original power relation. That is precisely what the unions achieved by promoting workers' identity, by getting workers to perceive their interests through this identity lens the union simultaneously express and define the interest of the members, which as a brilliant side note that I'm going to add in there, this creates the problems of workerism and workers identity that Duvet was complaining about in volume one, that by creating this identity, you are now invested in capital in a way that makes you where you would not want to overturn it anyway.
0: While it's not the identity itself that creates that locked in compact, it does exactly reflect the reasons why you wouldn't want to overturn that society, the very thing giving you this identity, which is at once a class and a national identity.
1: Individual workers had to recognize the union as acting in their interest in the broad sense, even when their own particular interests were not being served by the union's bargaining strategies. This is a feature of all routinized demand based struggle, insofar as collective, as as a collective wants to make demands in that sense, to engage in the sort of bargaining the members of that collective must either share an immediate interest or either must be com- compatible with forming an identity to plug the gaps among their overlying interests, paradoxically inducing a non-utilitarian element into demands-based struggle.
0: Let's, hold on a second. Non-utilitarian element into a demands-based struggle. We have to appreciate how difficult this is. And we're people that do believe in, in you know, some sort of minimum program proletarian interest. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't see how, you know, getting health care isn't, for instance. I know that's the dumbest, simplest one. But
1: again, even here, the serial interest and the collective interest become different because there are unions who fight against socialized medicine because they have themselves gotten a better deal as a concession of their as part of their union, usually because they're state employees unions and they're highly productive cartelized workers than they yes. can ever get under a socialized medical schema.
0: That's undoubtedly true. But overall... Most proletarians aren't in that union. <laughs> no, in fact,
1: I would say it's probably point oh oh one percent And right. I'm well, also that union, for all of its reactiveness, also doesn't have an effect on this anyway. My only point is, like, there is no, right now, way to say we have something that all the working class could agree upon because our sectional interests are so different. And I will even go further. That's why we have all these weird ass theories of class right now that don't have any real grounding, except in like descriptive categories. They don't have any like functional or structural or real clear economic bind, like, you know, PMC or elite or whatever is because the way the sectional interests have really tapered off. I mean, When you read someone like Michael Lynn, who's not a Marxist at all, they can explain that there's a rationality. It's not even necessarily a a short-term rationality to the way a lot of these things are going and playing out politically. Right, right. So, yeah. But the non-utilitarian force of collective... Our whole series on betrayal, in some ways, is our partial response to this problem. You have to inject the symbolic element back in. Which, as a side note, I have been saying for fucking 10 years that that even I as a Marxist do not think a worker's identity in and of itself would ever be a constituent of enough identity if it was based purely on self-interest to survive. I mean, you have the prisoner
0: dilemma dynamics come back. Right. And the symbolic collective identity plugs gaps among these overlapping interests. The footnote they have here, or I don't know what kind of note this is because it's in fancy HTML... The truth is, is that they use footnotes in print, which is funny. Anyone who participated in Occupy can see that if unity of demands is to be obtained across diverse sections and then presented to the world without a shared identity, that can be achieved only through an endless deliberation and or at the cost of many people not getting what they want. So in a funny way, notes isn't actually against these flattening identities. No. <laughs> in, it, In a sense, because it's the only way that this kind of actor can articulate and win,
1: or that they literally don't think this is possible. Like that, this strategy is possible.
0: They think that uh, fictive unities have temporary holds on this until these deeper fissures come about, and it. So it doesn't seem like they believe that any kind of long-term or oppositional organizational capacity is possible, right? But it's time boxed. It's not a one-dimensional category. It's not one of the categories given to you by capitalist society. It's something for the most part that comes up in the heat of the moment, the 99% or the water protectors or, you know, whatever comes up when people are together and before it gets cashed in on, before the symbol is deflated. That's implied by their analysis. But I think it's hard to talk about this without talking about what happens to these symbols. This is the Baudrillard end of things. You know, you have the 99%, the fund deployment of the V for Vendetta mask in an American context, the Guy Fawkes mask. And then you have the Guy Fawkes mask Ten years later, we can't unite behind the Guy Fawkes mask if we ever could. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like it means something else now.
1: A lot of its original identity has gone back to it. It's pre instantiation.
0: (laughs) Although Endnotes does also admit that citizens can be a category under which the proletariat comes together on, which I think is problematic for something that they're going to say here. It is because workers' organizations had to partly redefine interests in order to meet them that they were forced to rely on, quote, non-utilitarian forms of collective action based on, quote, collective identities. Indeed, the capacity for demand-making in a given struggle may be grasped as structurally linked with its capacity to draw upon an existing or forge a new collective identity. Demand-making and composition are two sides of the same coin, And footnote there's a really good essay called gather us from among the nations, which deals with this in the Balkan countries in the context of the workers' movement. This point applies not only to negotiations with bosses, but also to the expansion of political parties and to the growth of all other organizations existing in urban environments, full of ex peasants and or recent immigrants. The sheer number and diversity of situations makes it hard to decide on common intermediate goals, that is prior to the conquest of power. But even if this wasn't a problem, the costs of organizing remain high in other ways. Workers have few monetary resources. They pay the costs of the class struggle, mostly with their time and effort, joining a demo, attending a meeting, striking. If one has to work 12 hour days, or to look after children, as most women workers did. All this is extremely difficult. Moreover, there is no way for workers to monitor each other's contributions. Together with the sheer size of the movement, this creates collective action problems. We see this in the moral center of the workers' movement, cultivating a sense of duty, solidarity, but also in the means of discipline, the closed shop, attacks on scabs. Even with these assets, the attraction of workers' organizations Varied greatly, as did their organizational capacities. It still usually took a tragedy, such as an industrial fire or a massacre by company goons, to bring together the majority of the workers out into the street. Yeah, that's true. So even in their heyday, even with their, you know, Foucaultian apparatus, disciplining you through your identification, then letting out repressive force behind the scenes in order to bolster up that identification. It still took, ultimately, a tragedy inflicted upon the class to really bring the workers out in full force. This apparatus wasn't attractive enough by itself.
1: No apparatus would be attractive enough by itself unless it secured the means of freedom, which means in a capitalist society, owning capital does, and nothing else. Just saying. Because they're right. Because of the capitalist power relation and money, and and the material goods in which that gains them, the capitalist can play all this out politically. Whereas the worker has to play all this out socially and and politically too. But like, there's no way to make the, there's no way to separate the demands of keeping your, your self interest met from the other demands. And the collective identity will always weaken over time. I mean, one of the things that they don't really deal with in this essay, but like the amount of times that the collective, worker identity subsumed into a national one real damn quick because of the inability for most people to get their needs met by the collective identity.
0: They describe the apparatus behind the rise of the workers movement, which, you know, creates that nexus of national identity and workers identity mm-hmm. that they do describe. They do,
1: but then it, but then it turns on itself and the national identity becomes easier for one thing, why wouldn't it? Because the national collaboration, if you if if the bourgeoisie actually believes in it, gives you access to money. It's the reason why for example Hamas's dual power organization always was more effective than the fucking socialist one because the Hamas organization could appeal to rich bourgeois Muslims interested in the brotherhood in a way a socialist might be able to get one or two class traders, but that is the best you are going to do. Of course, as soon as you start having something like a nation, the problems of class within the group start to immediately manifest and re-breaks down the identity. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about this in the game theoretically, and this does make universalist politics kind
0: of hard. Yes, it does. And Not also- just that. It makes proletarian politics hard. It makes proletarian social coalition hard.
1: Well, I mean, you haven't seen that, have you? And the fact that we can't get anyone to even go agree on what they were going to vote on, even when they agree on progressive policies, sort of, kind of.
0: You know, let alone having a party with the proletarian interest, you know, as the program. Like, we're not even close. This can be overstated and catastrophized, as if most of the proletariat doesn't have an interest in getting health care. I use health care because it's the one out there. It's the one in the memes. I just want health care.
1: Well, it's also you know, the one that you can't throw as particularly benefiting a subclass, for example, like you can with free education.
0: Right. Like, for instance, I, I woke up at 7 a.m. this morning to fucking get health insurance. The Arizona welfare offices, you know, like the whole thing is done over the phone. You can't do it online. You can talk to someone at the office. They're still employing people there. So whatever COVID threat they're being exposed to is still active, but they can't do anything about the welfare process. So it's even hard just to get health insurance r- like right now. Like, and I- I'm not even particularly proletarian. This is close to a g- as close to a general social interest even beyond the proletariat that you can imagine. And the level of shit that you get for even throwing that this out there is like, you might as well be asking to line up the whole Fortune 500 and shoot them. That is the reaction you get in the political class. You get called a racist for wanting healthcare. (laughs) Like your candidates get smeared, like because they're, you know, not intersectional enough or whatever. There's like every every trick in the book will be put out there. If you have something like a universalist program to accentuate all of the points. And this is where I I guess I push back a bit on Endnotes and that like, I don't think it is that hard to think about a core of what people have in common and need if you think of humans as having a nature having innate needs there is a core of human need that would be the basis of a socialist program but
1: it wouldn't be a basis of a proletarian one i'm just going to point that out there like
0: no this is a humanist program and to the extent that the proletariat are human which you know They are. Yeah. I mean, it would
1: it would benefit almost everybody in the social system, including non proletarians that have in a way that even most capitalists kind of agree on the amount of capitalists who admit that the fact that we have the weird insurance system that we have in the United States actually causes them problems. It was actually discussed about why so many manufacturing parts were outsorting component construction to Canada so that they didn't have to contribute to the paying of healthcare because it essentially became a free rider problem for everybody, which means it was a free rider problem for nobody. I mean, like, it solves a free rider problem, but in, in another way, though, that's only because it's a clear, it is your one clear stake.
0: It ain't socialism, not even remotely. And yet, it doesn't seem like you can get universal healthcare in capitalist America.
1: On this one, that's America.
0: Yeah. If you talk to Scandinavians, if you talk to Swedes about their healthcare system and where it's gone over the last 40 years, versus if you talk to Americans about the healthcare system over the last 40 years, if, if the American knows what's going on, do we really think that our healthcare systems become more like Sweden's? Or has the Swedish healthcare system become more like the United
1: There's States? There's no, there, neither, actually. I'm, I'm actually going to say that the United States is too generous on this one.